n'est-ce pas Babylone Il t'a fourni des armes pour tuer ton peuple. N'écoute pas Afrique. Afrique Nanga Oyamba, toi cheveux crepus. Bah toi Mayele Bosimba ni Babige. Oya Bilanga Bosimba ni Bakongo. Simba ni Maboko Mouna le Kateo Afrika. Malobate, mon salande. Africa, Mobali Yamingao, Africa, Hatona Mosolo, Africa. Tu gâtes ton nom par-ci par-là. Quand c'était les blancs, quand les gros ont souffert, mais c'était mal de connaître. Les gros ont combattu pour arriver en black en black, devenu le stade de la guerre. Welcome to Congo Live, the authentic voice of the Congolese people. This is your host, Patricia Lokwa, and joining me today in the studio is Kambali Musavuli. How are you today, Kambali? I'm good, I'm good. Glad to be back in the DC area uh, for the weekend. How are you? I'm doing uh, great. I'm looking forward to uh, the show today to talk about uh, Africans and in specific Congolese in the diaspora. Um, some of the questions we'll be asking today are how can Africa rise with such and much of its intellectual capa- capital outside of the continent? Can the sons and daughters of Africa living outside the continent return to build their home? Can the cheetah generation make a difference in Africa? The cheetah generation? What's that about again? Well, why don't you uh, give... I know I'm also learning and I had that question for you. Why don't you elaborate a little bit more on what is the cheetah generation? That's the same expression I had the first time I heard that uh, from Professor George Aite uh, as he was describing uh, the generation of young Africans uh, living abroad uh, in the United States, in Europe and other places around the world uh, where they've left the countries uh, to find new opportunities and get exposed to other experiences around the world. But there is now this generation of these young Africans who are going back no, giving back to the communities, uh, bringing the knowledge that they've learned, be it in science uh, or in any other field, uh, bringing it back to the continent. So that's what he coined as the Chida generation of uh, pretty much you and I going back to the motherland. I guess uh, for some of our listeners who may be in the Baltimore area, why would it be important for a young African coming from Africa, in your perspective, Kambali, to go back to Africa? Like, why not Africans coming here and giving to Americans? Why do they feel the need to go back? I think both are needed. You know, there are those who will be here uh, still working and making mm-hmm. uh, the United States a better place. And there are those who need to go back, uh, mainly because of uh, how far beyond we are, for example, in the field of technology. Uh, how can we empower young Africans through technology uh, to make their communities much better, be connected in this uh, international highway that we call the internet uh, to get access uh, to information. Also in the medical field, there are many things that can be done that uh, in the West we have the experience, we have the knowledge, uh, the know-how that uh, we can bring back to our countries. And mainly from the context of uh, Aite, he sees uh, the Chile generation as the bridge from the, uh, in the West and Africa where we can understand the local realities 
uh, better than uh, outsiders. And then we have this knowledge, so it makes it even much easier for us to help develop our homes. Uh, speaking of the cheetah generation, we're going to have a great guest who's going to be on the show today, Pichu Malamba, who's going to be joining us, who um, did what Kambali has just mentioned, went back to Africa, gave back, took some of the knowledge. And I'm sure, Kambali, you want to correct me. He always looks at me when I'm saying these names like, come on, Patricia. No, Pichu Go. Malaba is Malaba. going to be with us uh, very soon. Very, very energetic uh, young man. But before we... Uh, bring him on. You want to um, make sure you do the news. It's always important. So oh, go yes, ahead and share yes. with us. Um, Jean-Marie Kalonji, a young Congolese uh, activist on the ground from uh, the youth group for uh, the Fourth Voice, Quatrième Voix, is still being detained by the Congolese intelligence agency, our so-called CIA in the Congo. Uh, he was arrested on December 15th or 2015 and he's being detained with our charges. Uh, he was organizing youth in Congo to know more about the civic responsibilities and engage them in the electoral process in the Congo. Six young activists from the youth group Lucha, who were sentenced to two years in prison for attempting to foment a revolt, um, of course, that's the opinion of the Congolese government, um, have been, uh, they were sentenced originally to six uh, to, to 10 years in jail. I'm sorry, two years in jail, but now their sentences has been reduced to six months. The arrest and sentencing has generated international outcry against the Kabila regime. Uh, Christophe, uh, Christopher Ngoy, who is a Congolese activist uh, who has been detained since the Telema uprising in January of 2015, uh, he's ill. No, he's been uh, hospitalized and his family has issued an alert about the government negligence of the health of this uh, human rights activist. As I mentioned, he was arrested in January because uh, the government believes that he was responsible of uh, organizing the uprising. But we do believe that the reason why he's arrested is among the people on the ground who exposed uh, the government after the uprising of uh, snatching up dead bodies in hospitals. Uh, to what in what we believe lowering the number of deaths that um, were going to be reported after the uprising. The Congo Basin rainforest is often referred to as the world's second lung behind the Amazon. Uh, Congo's Minister of Environment recently declared that the government will end its moratorium on the provision of new licenses for logging. What does that really mean? Uh, the Congo forest has so many trees that sold to in the international market. And many Western uh, nations, uh, Western corporations have had access and licenses to cut the trees there, which will have an ecological impact to the planet. Uh, the fact that uh, there was a moratorium to stop uh, the cutting of the trees was actually something great, but unfortunately, the Congolese government is going to be allowing this to happen. Lastly, uh, the controversy that has arisen over the presidential election to take place uh, later this month, actually the elections to take place later this month in Congo, um, Kabila's presidential majority has demanded that certain individuals enroll to run for governor be struck from the candidate's role. The Electoral Commission considered and determined that only 76 of the 135 submissions were valid. Uh, this action on the part of the Electoral Commission raises serious concerns about its independence from Kabila's presidential majority 
Coalition.
Welcome back to Congo Live. Uh, again, the authentic voice of the Congolese people. You are just listening to Milabel singing Nakei Nairobi. Uh, in this song, she speaks of the long-lost love from the singer living in Nairobi, Kenya, and hoping one day to reunite in Kinshasa. And our guest uh, has j also just returned from a trip to Kenya. And he was uh, there working uh, with the company he's with. He's going to share with us more. Um, when he comes on. But to let our listeners know how esteemed our guest is, I will read his bio. It's, he has such an extensive bio uh, around the work that he does. Now, Pichu Malaba is a young Congolese entrepreneur and political strategist with a solid understanding of the fortunes of Africa and the subsequent political quagmire as the result of the African continent mismanagement by both African leaders and the West. He has worked in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Zambia, and Botswana, mainly in the field of neurophysiology. And we'll hear more what, does, uh, what that actually means. He has served as a Nuvasive Spine Foundation Ambassador since October 2011, and is responsible for the leadership and management of the NSF direct mission trips. He holds a technical engineering degree from the Advanced School of Applied Technology in Kinshasa, ISTA, a BS degree in Industrial Technology from Illinois State University, a Master in Business Administration from Colorado Technical University, and Certification in Neurophysiological Intraoperative Neuromonitoring and the coveted Nuvasive Extreme Lateral Interbody Fusion Certification. Petrie is an ardent passion, uh, passion for helping others uh, to innovate care, uh, in innovate care and in developing countries. Pichu Malaba, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you guys. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, welcome to Congo Live. We're excited. Uh, listening to Kambali just read your... We all work for it, to try to even accomplish by the time that we're 60 you've already accomplished it so um you know congratulations for the work that you're doing and to give back to the congo it's always an honor to speak to somebody who's doing exceptional work and always representing the congo in the process so to get a little bit into the show i wanted to kind of go back into your past and before you coming to america um if you can share with uh, us and our listeners a little bit about your transition and how you ended up in the USA. Uh, it's a long story and I'm excited to actually share with you guys the long story. I was born in the Congo in a, in a small town called Kolwezi, the mining town where everybody knows everybody. And uh, the town produced uh, at that time at least 10% of the world copper. And my father was a mechanic. Mm. Uh, my mother was a bank manager uh, up until the day where uh, the war started. Uh, the war started because uh, there were an opposition leader in, in the Congo uh, opposing to Mobutu who was imposing dictatorship in a country. And mm -hmm. it happened that the opposition leader belonged to my tribe. So Mobutu uh, declared open season to all the members of my tribe. Wow. And, and that's how um, my story started, basically, from um, being to sc in school, in a boarding, Catholic boarding school, to a refugee camp for five years, mainly homeless. Wow. So that's kind of uh, what I went through. And uh, 
it's a long story, but uh, as we go, maybe you can uh, discover a little more about that. Definitely. Thank thank you for sharing with us because I, 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 you know, I, I think it's important for sometimes for people to go back and hear a little bit about um, the history behind individuals that we have on the show. From time to time, I think it's important to see where the person's drive comes from. And when they hear these stories and when I hear these stories, it's a reminder that not everybody is born into opportunity. And sometimes we go through challenges in life. And when you go through these challenges, they define who you are. And as we speak about them defining who you are, I know as some recently you were in Kenya, we were just playing a song by Mgila Bell talking about uh, her being in Kenya. Can you share a little bit about um, how was your trip in Kenya? My trip in Kenya was um, was exciting. It was great. I go to Kenya four times a year uh, for mission trips. Mm-hmm. So basically, the company that I work for, uh, it, it's a medical device company. We manufacture uh, devices, prosthesis for spine reconstruction. So uh, when the company approached me five years, six years ago, and I wanted to know, based upon my story, what we can do for Africa. So I told them, let's, uh, let's go back. Let's go to Africa and train them about what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, as you might, you, you know, uh, spine surgery is, uh, is one of the most expensive surgeries you can get here in America, let alone in Africa. And in Africa, we don't have expertise in terms of uh, surgeon's skill set. There is no uh, spine fellowship in the whole continent of Africa, except South Africa. So the sub-Saharan Africa, there is no zero uh, spine training. If, if, if you want to do spine or any other expertise, such as heart surgery or, or lung surgery or anything, you have to come to the West. And then you have to spend a lot of money to get trained. And it would not make sense for such a person to go back to Africa only to get paid uh, almost uh, close to nothing. So most people who come here get trained, they stay here in America and, 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 and then live their lives. So I realized that we have to do something about the pathologies in Africa. So we wanted to go back and start training locals on their ground and then and facilitate that training by providing lectures and didactic and surgeries uh, for free. And, and, and with that, we have allowed surgeons, especially like in Kenya, where when I, ju- I came, I uh, landed in Kenya five, six years ago, there were no spine surgeons. Today, you have 15 solid spine surgeons that can provide care for 43 million people. At least the 43 million people have an option today to go someplace and be treated and know they will have a better outcome. So the, the trip in February was uh, similar it was more on uh, a little bit advanced. Now that we have done so many trips, uh, we have done 19, 19 missions in Kenya, and and this one was more on deformity-focused mission. Mm. So basically, we select patients with uh, deformed uh, spine, and then and we correct them and get get them back to uh, to their life. How many people have you trained so far in Kenya? Uh, if you have to give a quantitative number. So if I can take in account nursing, the nursing staff, pre-op and post-op, surgeons, residents, I would, I would say close to 100 people that are trained to take care of spine pathologies in the country. 
Wow, that's that's quite a lot. You know, um, it's uh, very impressive. And uh, I want to hear more also about the Nuvesive Spine Foundation because you now you work with them very closely, and you're doing this training and just looking into uh, your last trip. I'm seeing that you were speaking in Tennessee just uh, not long ago. I think February 29th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what was that event about? And what is the uh, the other aspect of the work of the foundation? around your spine uh, abroad and also here in the United States? Yeah, so in Tennessee, uh, as you know, for us to bring spine surgeries in developing nations, we need to get help from other companies such as logistics company, like FedEx company. So the FedEx Corporation has been helping us in minimizing the cost of shipping and, and handling and custom clearance in different countries. Okay. So... With that being said, uh, the FedEx uh, in Nashville, when I landed, so I just came from Africa on Monday, around 4, I landed in Nashville, and at 7, I had a speech to give out to, uh, <laughs> to, wow. <laughs> at the T.J. Martel Foundation, yeah. uh, which is the foundation that recognized uh, people in, uh, in various uh, fields, the people that are trying to, to change lives in various capacities. So... Uh, I was supposed to give the award to the a global citizenship award to FedEx Corporation, and uh, the FedEx founder, Mr. Frederick Smith, was the uh, um, recipient. Uh, uh, was the person that actually uh, uh, received the award, and uh, they allowed me to kind of give the perspective of what I think about uh uh changing lives on this planet and and how we should all partner together to hold uh the people who don't have uh who are disadvantaged economically disadvantaged people who so we can help them move forward i see i see and uh how did you get interested in uh, neurophysiology let's say some sort of obscure type of our uh, specialty um, how, how did you get exposed to that and decided, oh, this is what I'm going to do? Right. So I think I cannot say my story about making this statement. And uh, I always say there is one thing that I know for sure with evidence is that there is a God above and there is good people on the planet. Mm. So now to go back about how I chose neurophysiology, I landed in America in July 24, 2003. A week later, I went to church. And as I was in church, I didn't know how to speak English, not even a word. I didn't even know how to say hi. And there was this gentleman who came behind me as I was speaking with my friend Moise. And uh, he said, hey, my mother speaks French as well. So he's in a broken French. He tried to engage in conversation with me. Then I looked at him, and he seemed to be uh, well-dressed. So... As an African, when somebody is well-dressed, it's a sign of, of, of uh, wealth. Uh, so I had that mindset uh, in me uh, back then. So I asked him right away, I said, uh, hey, you look very nice. What, are you, what do you do in life? I would like, you know, I just landed. I don't have any clue about what I'm going to do. So he whispered in my ears and said, education is the key. And then he gave me an address. And say, come to where I work. Maybe you can see what I do, and you maybe you would uh, have an idea about you're gonna be what you're gonna be doing. Next morning, I went. It was a hospital, so I was so 
I was discouraged at first <laughs> because I realized how can I meet this guy at the hospital, a huge hospital in Illinois called Broman Hospital. But then I decided to get in the revolving doors and then get out because I didn't know how to speak, so I didn't want to bother anybody. As I was going in the revolving door, the guy was coming down the escalator. So that was the perfect timing in my life to meet the guy coming down the escalator again. And he recognized me, brought me to the ORs, the operating rooms, without checking me in with like, he just said, oh, you come and I'll, see, I'll show you what I do. It turns out he was a spine surgeon. Hmm. So he brought me to the changing room. We put scrubs in and, 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 and my shoe covers. And, and I went to the OR. And then as soon as we got to the doors, he said, are you going to be fine with blood? I was like, I, I don't know. I realized as he asked that question, I pictured the, the carnage that I saw in a refugee camp, people hmm. being killed and all of that. So I said, if I've seen that, I'm probably going to be good in the operating room. So I, I, I told him, I'll be fine. I got in the operating room. Sure enough, the guy was a spine surgeon. He was doing spine surgery on that day. And, uh, and he, in the middle of the case, he talked to me. He said in French, if you learn how to speak English, and, and he said this, if you learn how to speak English with no accent, I will hire you in five months. So he gave me the challenge, learn how to speak English in five months and I'll hire you. Wow. And that was my challenge. I went to Barnes uh, and Noble, bought a dictionary for $15. I started memorizing words, 10 words in the morning, 10 in the afternoon. So I had a dictionary, which is French, English, English, French. I could read the words and then know the meaning and then memorize. Five months later, I called a guy in English. I said, hey, what up? So the guy gave me a job, and the job was, he gave me this big binder in neurophysiology, and said, you read this, and then you need to get a board certification in neurophysiology, and that would be your ticket in life. So, again, another challenge, he paid me $10 to read. So every time I would come to the office, I would read for for a few hours, he would pay me $10 an hour. Wow. It was not easy. So I had to go back to school. So I attended two universities at the same time in order to manage my passion, which was engineering, and then neurophysiology, which was a challenge. So I, I had, on one hand, two years later, a degree in uh, information technology at Illinois State University, and then a board certification in neurophysiology. And that was the beginning of my story in America. I definitely, I love hearing your story. Uh, very you know, inspirational. It's very inspirational. I'm just sitting here. I forgot even about that I was on Congo Live. I'm just like, <laughs> like focused on this story. But uh, let's take a short break and uh, we'll be right back and we can talk a little bit more about your transition to Kenya and in Africa. Sure. Maya. Oh Maya mon amour, yoka mongongo mozali kobele la yona kati ya buto, yoka lokole na suka ya mboka, ozali moto kanisa. Na komi lokola litanga ya mbula pemeni ya ibale Maya, kasi atabutu e indi makasi, tongo e kusuka kasi tana. Nazali responsable na yo, 
Yonde Ozali, coupable et à misère Nangai. Misapina komine kobanga Bala li bon soto salaki matata Ezalaki kakaboye Soki na fungola ki misote Olinga ki yobo yanga Mayanga inatilo boku nalita mama Kambo matoni nga mote maye Nakomi kotanga basanza na misapina komine kobanga Mala liboso yo kene ki isiro ezala ki kakaboye Soki na futa kitikete na landa yo Olinga ki yo zungate Mayana misilo le muna zoki Makila masangani na soya mono Komo susu na waka mosusu na melana Komina badute Pala eleki yo senga ki divorce Obanda ki kakaboye Soki na landa ki lo lendo na yo Ezala ki seto kabwanae Oh, qui ça, ça, qui ça, 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 moto ça, 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 And welcome back to Congo Live. And you are just listening 
to the song Maya, a song written by Lutumba Simaro and sung by Congolese singer Carlito. In this song, we hear about a struggle of a man in love to keep his lover who seems to be leaving him. Lutumba Simaro is a notorious songwriter who has written songs for OK Jazz and many other Congolese artists. And welcome back, Pichu. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so I was listening to, you know, such a, an inspiring story of how you came to America and came across somebody who really um, guided you in your process. But before we go on to what came from that and how you you ended up in other areas, in other works that you're doing, I wanted to kind of take it back to the first question that I asked you was your experience in the Congo and leaving the Congo. Um, when we talk about you being, for example, in the camp, can you share a little bit about how you ended up in there and some of your experiences in there and how you got out for some of our listeners who may not always understand these scenarios? Yeah, so I, I remember I was in school. It was 1991, March, and uh, we were in uh, uh, doing electronics, and there were this gentleman that came into my uh, in, in the classroom with blood on his shirt. Mm. And uh, he, he gave us a greeting very politely in Swahili. But it was prohibited in our school to speak Swahili. We all speak French because it was a Belgium-owned Catholic school. And then he said, hey, in an hour, we're going to start a decapitation session. He said it as if it was a normal activity to just, you know, decapitate people. And then he said, thank you for listening. Uh, and then he got out. We thought it was a big joke. And only after a few hours, we realized it was not a joke. And the militia in the country uh, were already there, and they started killing people uh, who belong to my tribe. Uh, again, it was all political. Uh, the, the whole process started between two leaders at the top who were fighting for power, and mm -hmm. the rest of us just succumbed to that. Uh, around the next morning, around like uh, 2 a.m., uh, everybody uh, got out of their homes, and then we went to a train station, thinking maybe by 6 o'clock we're going to go home, and the police officers will come and everything will get back to normal, only to realize that a million people joined the train station. Wow. And uh, uh, we thought, okay, maybe next morning. And the next morning is, oh, no, maybe tomorrow. So a week later... We saw, I witnessed something that I always want to share, is that the way we are here, for instance, in America, you know, there is no war whatsoever. Every now and then we hear somebody killing each other here and there, but that's not a big deal. But imagine that you are at a train station, a million people, and in circle, and you can't get out because as soon as somebody gets out, he gets killed or she gets killed. Then your standards of living, whether it's a bathroom, hygiene start dropping down at astronomical speed. So uh, first, you can uh, wait for somebody, uh, you know, in, be in line in the bathroom. Second, when it's uh, already fourth or fifth day, you no longer wait on the line. You can do your business somewhere outside. By the time it's, uh, it's a week, you no longer think about who is looking at you and, uh, and you want to eat something. So it doesn't matter if it, it has dirt on it or, or not. So I realized when I uh, I realized that wherever level of 
standards of living we, we have, it's all function of the equilibrium that we have around us. Mm. As soon as we start cranking things up and pressure start coming, the hygiene, the standard of living, the classism, whatever we have right now would drop and then survival mode would kick in. And mm. that's how you see people reacting differently. So I witnessed that. We stayed at the train station for a month. Wow. And then one day, a train showed up. So imagine after a month at the train station, no food, you know, uh, no running water, hygiene very chaotic, and a train showed up. Everyone wanted to jump in. We all tried to jump in, and my mother had a little money, so she gave money to the people who were supposed to put some orders around so they can secure a spot, but only to lose that money in the next 15 minutes because another group came and claimed to be the ones that actually uh, put orders. And then another group came. So in less than an hour, all our savings were gone. We, put, we got on the train, and they say you need to get out of here, and then you need to go where you belong. So it's as if you're in America. I'm trying to put in a perspective about American life. You're in America, you're a, an Italian descent, but a fourth generation in America. So you don't even know what Italy looks like. Mm. You don't even speak your language. But they ask you one day that, because America is no longer in, in good uh, contact or good relationships with Italy, all the Italian descent need to get out. So that's kind of, that was kind of similar situation. So we need to go where we belong. And we've never been there. We don't speak the language. We don't have the traditions. We were born somewhere else. So then we got on the train, and it took us another month on the train. Why a month? Because the train was an electrical train. And there were people on top of an electric train, which means every now and then somebody would touch the, the lines and get blown up, blown up, and the train would stop to bury them. Or, or somebody would be uh, uh, not holding on the train strongly, and they would fall, and, and the train would just run over them, and we have to stop and bury them. Or elderly people would die suffocating Children would die in the train just being suffocated, and they would stop. And it took a long time, and more than a month. It was like 33 days on the train. Or sometimes we would derail. Where was the train going? Um, it was going to Bujimai. Hmm. So from Kolwezi to Bujimai, it took us 33 days. And uh, it was horrible. And when we got to Bujimai now, it was a, a normal refugee camp with uh, UNICEF and water is being brought by, you know, tanks and food. Every now and then there is, you know, a, a truck coming with food, you beeline and get the food. So the normal refugee kind of exercise and all everything that I've learned in the past went out the window of oh, the hygiene uh, or, or the standard of living. Oh, now it's survival mode, trying to eat trying to find food, and that's how I wind up in uh, diamond mining. Uh, if you guys have seen the movie Blood Diamonds, mm-hmm. that the movie depicts at least uh, 90% of accuracy uh, what we, we, we used to live. I was only 16 when I got in the diamond, but survival mode, you have to work uh, and then get paid a little uh, for the warlords 
in the diamond. So that was kind of our lives in uh, in Mbushimai for the next five years. I have a, a question for you. I've always, um, you know, my main focus right now is education and I work with children and I'm starting to really grasp the psychological effects of different things that happen to children and how it influences their thought process at an older age. Um, I'm really interested in just trying to understand your mind during this period. Uh, you've shared a lot of things that an average person in the USA doesn't really uh, go through or may not even go through their entire life. What was going on through your head at the age of 14, 15, 16 as you're seeing all of this? What were you thinking? Um, did you lose a sense of hope or were you just so focused on survival that nothing else mattered around you and to have your mother who's there? What, what was going on in your mind? regarding what is happening in the world? I think uh, the first question in my mind was, why? The why question. Why this is happening to us? Because every now and then you see kids in the car being brought to school by their parents. Every now and then you see uh, kids playing on the playground with their parents and while you're in the refugee camp. Every now and then when you get out of the refugee camp, go find for food. You see kids in the store being bought, be, you know, with ice cream. So mm. then you realize, why me? Why us? Mm. Why this happened to us? So I came up with uh, an understanding that the why question is actually a natural question to human beings. But it's a very dangerous question when you ask. Because what, what happens is that you start looking for faults in you. Maybe something is wrong with you. Maybe something is wrong with your family. Maybe something is wrong with your country or your, your, your tribe. You start looking for negative things. It, you start going on the, on the very uh, slippery slope. Mm -hmm. and, and, then, and then it's natural. It, it's going there. Now, I was so fortunate. As I was asking the why question, one day I went to join the rebel group. Uh, so when you realize, when you get the uh, why question, at some point you want to stop everything else around you because you realize it's so unfair that you are suffering, but other folks are living a better life. So it would be better to restart the whole thing over again by maybe blowing everything up. So today in my life, when I see people in the Middle East being blown away, mm -hmm. but you know, with the, I, I understand that. I, I, I understand that they've reached the, lit, the, the bottom level of the why question, mm. and that's so dangerous. But the, me, I was so fortunate. I went to join a rebel group, uh, the Kabila group, the one that is in power right now, uh, and I interviewed with them. And I was, uh, I, as I was interviewing with them, uh, I looked at the, uh, the, the, the former president who was uh, a, a, a speaker for them at that time, he misbuttoned his, his shirt. Uh, he had misbuttoned <laughs> his shirt. So just that, it, it was a question that dawned on me. I'm like, okay, if this guy cannot put correctly his shirt, obviously he cannot lead us. Then I, I, as I got out, somehow, all, almost as if it was an audible voice, I heard something in me saying, why, on, why, why do you ask why? Why can't you ask how? Then I switch from a why question to a how. So, so a how question 
It's basically you say, whatever is happening around me, I really don't care. But how am I going to get out of here? So you're on a positive note. You're no longer on a negative trying to point fingers on somebody why this happened to us. How is a good question to ask, but only few people get to ask how in the first place. So when we, when we come back, we'll get to the how we can make Congo a better place. All right. Nalisanga nabukasi nabuyukani Ndito kolunga ngoe Peuple congolais Tilima, 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 tilima Bukutana nakita kayo congolais Je lève mes yeux dans le ciel Je vois la lune, les étoiles Je plane And welcome back to Congo Live, um, the authentic voice of the Congolese people. We're having a great conversation with uh, Pichu, who's talking to us about um, his transition into the USA. And um, it was very inspiring. And I know Kambali has a few uh, questions that he would like to ask to kind of bring it into the how. And the perfect segue from the song we just listened, Congo Nabiso, uh, which reminds um, us Congolese people around the world and the allies uh, to love the Congo and to fight for the freedom of the Congo. And that's bringing us back to the how. How do we do that? You know, I heard of an organization called Game Changer DRC. And I know, Pichu Malaba, you are part of it. You know, you share with us your experience 
of uh, overcoming adversity through the refugee camp and the war in the Congo to coming to this country, getting an opportunity to be in neurophysiology, but yet you still connected to the Congo in your work. Why um, Game Changers and how did you get engaged with Game Changers uh, DRC? So, so Game Changers stemmed out of an idea uh, that uh, four of us, you know, uh, Moise Waitu, Jimmy Batila, Christian Bayou, and myself had uh, throughout the years. We, we used to talk about the how question, how the Africans in general and Congolese people in particular can uh, bring about the change that we all are looking forward to. So it all started with leadership. You know, uh, it's like in a family. When a dad is not focused any longer and or, or is no longer there, obviously the chance for the family to go in a in a, a, a to, uh, in in a, in a way that is not really good, uh, that chance is great. But when the dad is there and focused and know exactly how to lead the family, chance for that family to move forward and have. Uh, good kids that will go to school and be leaders in the community is also great. So for the Congo and for Africa, I would say for some reasons, for the last 20 centuries, we have had so little uh, of a very small number of leaders, transformational leaders in Africa, as opposed to other continents. You know, we take Europe or America, where we had the Abraham Lincolns or, or, or all these, you know, the founders of America who put together uh, good philosophies and a foundation for this country, for instance. But in Africa, we had very little. Uh, I would cite, you know, I would, I, would, I, would, I would put Mandela, Nelson Mandela, Kwame Nkrumah, and, and Patrice Emery Lumumba, but a very few. So we need a new generation. We need the new leadership, new kind of leaders in this new generation. But this, we have to define maybe the profile of these leaders. The new leaders are supposed to be the people that actually grew up in Africa, first of all. Mm -hmm. They understand the African mentality and, the, and, and also they understand the flaws of the African tradition, because there are so many flaws on that tradition, but also have left the continent to come and learn from outside in the West from the best out, outside America, for instance, or Europe, where you get to see the advancement in technologies and you get to see uh, uh, opportunities being created. You have to you get to see innovation be uh, uh, put forward. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, then we can bring back to Africa. So that's what we're trying to do. Myself, in my field, what, I've tried to, what I'm trying to do is this. Uh, I realized that for the last 60 years, the West have been donating money to African countries. Yeah. Almost a trillion dollars have been gone to Africa itself. But when you go to Africa and you ask for infrastructure reflecting one trillion dollars donated by America, you can't even see anything. Yeah. And then, then you ask yourself, is this because of uh, wrongdoing? Or is, is this because the people that were donating were were malicious, or is the recipients were malicious? What, what's wrong? Then you realize that none of the above. The donors gave with their heart in the right place. The recipient received the money, but they didn't know what to do with the money. And 
something needs to happen it needs to cha- in order to change the dynamic, which is money does not really change people. What changes people is knowledge. So Africa doesn't need money because mm-hmm. Africa is the wealthiest continent on the planet. Africa doesn't need money from anybody. All they need is knowledge, is change of mindset, philosophy, good leaders. That's pretty much it. It's like a house with a lot of food in, in, in the rooms, but kids are starving in, in the living room. Uh, so that's the dichotomy in Africa. All they need is to understand how to utilize their own resources for their own benefit. So a generation like us, game changer. We are coming to change that. We are coming to bring about the change that needs to Africa. We learned from the best in the West. We were, we, we, we create relationships from, the, with the best in the West. But it's a time now, it's really time to go back to Africa and implement what we have learned. And what we have learned is knowledge, understanding, and, and how things should work in different perspectives. So that's kind of in a broad way, how we can change Africa and Congo. Congo needs leadership. There's nothing else. The Congolese people are the strongest people on the planet that I've ever seen. All they need is a leader, and that's it. And the rest will fall into place. So how do you foresee now this uh, ambitious plan that you have uh, with Game Changers take place actually on the ground, given that there is a chance that the people on the ground say, well, you ate your tomatoes and drank your milk in the West, and now you coming to tell us what to do. How will the local community perceive that work? And what's your plan about um, making sure that they understand the vision of what Game Changers has to do? So it's about reformatting mindset. So when you go with, uh, and then because we live there for a long time, we understand the mindset clearly, and we follow them every day. We try to travel to the, to the Congo every year. So as part of the fabric, we want to start the change from the inside and out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have plans with uh, schools where we want to uh, educate the youngsters. We have plans with... Uh, uh, political politicians, as you've seen here in Chicago, exactly. uh, we brought so many of them here so that they can uh, learn from us and then we can learn from them, the exchange of knowledge. So this change is about changing the way people are thinking today in Africa. And one of the things that we want to uh, really nail on is the fact that they think democracy uh, is a foreign entity, and, and, and then therefore, instead of embracing democracy as a whole, they taking just pieces of it to show off to the West. Instead of understanding that democracy is actually a fabric for economic development. So far, many African countries see democracy as really a foreign entity as something that is there because it was imposed by the West. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't understand the implication or the transition between the, uh, democracy and economic development. So as soon as we start teaching them how democracy can bring about economic change, economic development, then they would embrace democracy as a fundamental uh, course of action that 
would be essential for their own development. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do, teach people about the importance of democracy in economic development. That's good. So we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, how can people get in touch with Game Changers and your, yourself? So uh, Game Changer DRC, uh, um, we have a website and that is being uh, uh, constructed right now. But uh, with myself, they can just email GameChangerDRC at gmail.com. We want all these Congolese people around the globe that are listening to join Game Changer with their ideas. We need to start going back home. You know, uh, that's where, you know, Africa is, is, you know, every time I go to Africa, I love Africa. It's yeah. one of the best continents, wealthiest continents, and the future of Africa is ours. We have it in our hands. This is about time for us to change the game. Please join, email us at gamechangerdrc at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Mr. Malaba. Uh, you have me motivated. I'm about to go on Game Changers and join. Uh, it was such an honor to have you uh, on the show. It's very insightful. And thank you for sharing your story. Uh, it's always an Thanks honor to me. have uh, individuals like yourself who inspire us Congolese to do more, to get involved more. And we want to thank our engineer for doing such a great job and Lubangi Munyanya for putting always a great show and of course Kambale thank you for joining us today. the last song is Naikei Kasilobi Nakozonga so I'm so excited we are we have left the Congo but we will return to the Congo thank you so much Mr. Malamba thank you for having me thank you all right